In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In her book, Walking on Water, Madeline Langle quotes a Hawaiian Christian woman, Mother Alice Kaholusuna. Before the missionaries came, my people used to sit outside their temples for a long time, meditating and preparing themselves before entering. Then they would virtually creep to the altar to offer their petition, and afterward would again sit a long time outside, this time to breathe life into their prayers. The Christians, when they came, just got up, uttered a few sentences, said amen, and were done. For that reason, my people called them heolis, without breath, or those who failed to breathe life into their prayers. And this kind of breathing life into prayers, Madame, Madame Langle writes, is letting go of that dictator's self which constantly tries to take over the controls. Breathing life into prayers, she says, is listening. So let me ask this morning, how do we need God to restore our breath to help us breathe so we can let go of that dictator self and open our hearts to one another and listen. It's listening, not talking, that will change our lives. Carl Rogers wrote, the risk of being changed is one of the most frightening prospects and exciting, I might add, that most of us can face. Psalm 23, we've heard it beautifully sung this morning. It's a psalm of David, who was a shepherd before he was a king. David personalizes and sustains the sheep-shepherd metaphor by making himself the sheep and God the shepherd. And as you probably know, likening God or a ruler, a king, to a shepherd is commonplace in this pastoral culture. In Judaism, Psalm 23 is recited over a dead body before burial. But it is not a psalm about death. It's a psalm about life and life's breath in the proximity of death. And I think this is especially poignant now. The third couplet of this poem shifts from this idyllic picture of lying down in lush grass slaking our thirst by still waters to this startling image of God restoring our breath. The Lord is my shepherd, he restores my soul. That's the time-honored reading, but literally it reads, my nefesh, my nefesh, my life breath he brings back. Before we can enjoy the grass and the still waters, we need to first catch our breath. It's what our children, I saw this morning, do in the children's worship. I don't know if the children, if you're doing it right now, but take a, take a moment just to breathe. One, two, three, four. God, our shepherd, helps us breathe because life is entirely dependent upon breath. And we are dependent upon God for our very breath. In his book, being Human, Rowan Williams writes, 
You can watch your breath. You can be conscious of your diaphragm rising and falling, conscious of the movement of life in you, and if you think at all about it, you might just think, well, for this time, as I breathe in and out, all I am is a place where life is happening. The breath moves in, the breath moves out. I am a place where life is happening. And if I'm a place where life is happening, I am a place where God is happening. And this is how we become silent and still, with the physical settling of breathing, which takes us gently but firmly out of our depth into the deep, where we don't have control, where we must trust. This breathing is part of that letting go of power, releasing our anxiety, and settling ourselves into the safe arms of the shepherd. When we are leaning on the everlasting arms, even in the valley of death's shadow, we are in a place of safety. You are safe. How many of us feel safe enough so that we are still enough to allow God to tell us to breathe and to breathe his life into us, to be still and listen to his voice and his voice in the voice of others when our voice wants to dominate everything? Our divine shepherd sustains our life because he gives us life. He is our creator and he cares for our bodies. We apprehend God through our bodies. And this is what Katie Schrader spoke about so beautifully in her catechesis for today. Please make sure to listen to that. Um, God created our bodies to maintain themselves in a highly complex and remarkably consistent state of equilibrium or homeostasis which holds all our complex systems together invisibly. The word homeostasis was coined by the physiologist Walter Cannon in the late 1920s, and it's a joining together of the Greek homoios, similar, and stasis, stillness. The capacity to sustain this internal constancy is a central feature of the body. Consider our temperature. The normal human body maintains an extraordinarily narrow range somewhere between 97 and 99 degrees, despite enormous, often unpredictable, variations in our environment. Walter Cannon writes, constancy in an open system such as our bodies represent requires mechanisms that act to maintain this constancy. Homeostasis does not occur by chance, but is the result of organized self-government. Cannon changed our conception of how the human body works by shifting physiology's focus from action, don't just stand there, do something, to the maintenance of a state of being fixed or stable. A major point of the body's activity, paradoxically, is to enable stasis, stillness. Don't just do something, Stand there. What keeps it all going is breathing. Breathe in. Breathe out. Repeat. What doctors know scientifically, the psalmist knew intuitively. In this state of stillness, of rest, 
and rhythmic breathing, we are still enough to actually enjoy life and the physical elements of a happy life that the psalm so lavishly lays out for us. A table laid out with good things to eat. A head of hair well rubbed with olive oil. Tammy told me not to do it this morning. An overflowing cup of wine. This is wonderful. And we enjoy all this in the face of our foes. Remarkable. This is our state when we follow the shepherd on the right path, even as we walk in the veil of death's shadow. However, when we use these good things to create a false sense of safety and make our own safety, we start to do unsafe things. And that dictator self starts taking over the controls. We start to stray off the right path the path of rightness, the path of justice, the path of integrity. We start to stray off that right path for his namesake and we wander down the wrong path for our namesake. As did the composer of Psalm 23, which is not just a shepherd song, it is also a royal song, a king song. We all know the story of David's tragic fall. His mighty deeds and his even greater misdeeds. And how his shepherd, the prophet Nathan, reminds David, and it wasn't a gentle reminder. Go and read that story in Samuel at some point. Nathan reminds David he has lost his way because he is a king who has forgotten to be a shepherd first. And David, stricken, repents and returns. And his nephesh. His life's breath has been restored, albeit with horrific consequences for him and his family. But he was breathing again. He's brought back to life. And from here on out in David's story, after his sin, in place of David, the seeker and wielder of power, we now see a broken and vulnerable David. And his hallelujah is a broken hallelujah. But it's a hallelujah nonetheless. He restores my soul. You are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of, of your souls. In repentance, in returning, and rest shall be your salvation. Isaiah 30, 15. Andrew reminded us last week to place our individual stories in the context of the larger story. We must do that with David's story. We must do that with our stories. And our primary story in our storytelling Bible isn't David's. It's the story of another shepherd. I asked Joel Erickson to read the text for this morning along with me, and he read them, and he pointed out to me that our gospel reading for today, John 10, 1 to 10, those verses, they do not identify Jesus as the good shepherd. The start. Rather, Jesus says he is the door or the gate through which he himself, the good shepherd, and all good shepherds and all their sheep must pass. Apparently mixed metaphors, shepherd and gate, didn't bother Jesus or his contemporaries. In fact, in fact, Jesus doesn't just mix metaphors, he melts them together to become a new figure of speech. I don't know what that's called, but it reflects a new reality. Joseph Bailey tells us that sheep folds in open pasture in the Middle East, have unroofed walls of stone 
and they're topped with briars so that thieves and brigands can't climb over. And no door, just an opening. These are, these are the ones out in pasture. The shepherd sleeps across, him, uh, across the opening, himself acting as the door. The good shepherd lays down his life, his body, for his sheep, even as he restores our bodies, our nephesh, our life's breath. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, says Jesus, our good shepherd. And that abundant life can be accessed only through Jesus. And I was reminded of Matthew 7, 14. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to abundant life. Jesus is the way. He is the path of rightness, of righteousness. He is the narrow door opening to that way. And he is the shepherd who guides us along the way. And as we partake of communion shortly, this is his body which we drink and eat, of which all that rich food and those luxurious oils and the finest wines. They are sacraments of God's presence, and only in God do they have life, and only in God can they give life to us. And the exquisite safety of God's presence can only come as we follow Christ through his narrow door and the hard way of sacrifice, the hard way of suffering in the veil of death's shadow. When whatever else we counted on for the illusion of safety gives out and gives way, that's when we know we are in the everlasting arms. And ironically, it's suffering which drives us into those arms. And that suffering can come in so many different ways. King David suffered the terrible consequences of his sin, the greatest of which was a realization that he had defaulted on who he really was. And he had become the man he hated. And yet still, God's mercy was upon him. Still, he was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Peter, the apostle goes to the other end of the spectrum of suffering as he encourages slaves who suffer for doing what is right. Even when they are being mistreated by their unbelieving owners, he encourages them because he says, in so doing, you are following in Christ's footsteps, Christ the suffering Savior. And this is the Peter principle of suffering. By our suffering love, we can bring others to salvation. And this is the suffering of self-sacrifice that yields the reward of God's powerful and loving presence. The blood which pours out of suffering's wounds is sacrificial love. Martin Thornton wrote, The power of the body of Christ is creative suffering and creative love. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we follow our shepherd and we realize that we are all shepherds. We're in this together. To use what's become a cliche now, but it's so true. All souls. We are shepherds to one another as we follow the good shepherd and as he walks with us. 19 days ago, I asked Jim Beitler to share a sermon with me. He preached on Transfiguration Sunday, February, February 2018, and I have been drinking deeply from him. In the sermon, Jim tells of how uh, he and Britta experienced God's presence when Britta was very sick. I took communion to the Bidlers 
on an October Thursday evening years ago when Britta was so sick. I hardly knew them at the time. I sat down with them while they were finishing dinner with James and Arnie. And uh, we proceeded calmly through the communion liturgy until we started reading the psalm from that previous Sunday's lectionary. I asked Britta and Jim to read together. Psalm 84. When we got to verse 4, even the bird has found a home and the swallow a nest for itself that puts its fledglings by your altars. Britta began to weep. Just two days ago, I think it was two, maybe three, she said, it was that weekend, she said through her tears, Jim and I were at a wedding in San Juan Capistrano where the cliff swallows return every spring to the mission to nest. And she said, Rob, God comes to me like this in so many different ways, through his word, through a, through a piece of art. He comes to me when I'm least expecting him. Two years later, just before my ordination, I wrote Jim and Britta. Here's what I wrote. As I near the end of this ordination process, I wanted to let you know how your witness to God's love has helped affirm and confirm his call to me to become a deacon. My one and only communion visit with you is a kind of beacon or lodestar or whatever else I might call it in this process. I remember you reading Psalm 84 and through tears telling me that this was yet another instance of God speaking his word into your heart. God was present to me through you. God's love manifest in your suffering is so evident now in your service. With gratitude and affection, Rob. The Lord is my shepherd, and so are all of you. Amen.